This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Yes, this is the day we wave a final goodbye to our old home and start to unbox our thousands of albums and CDs at our new home at 401 Bernadette Drive. Our new home is pretty fabulous and it's all on ground level. So now everyone can visit. This evening, though, we are heading out from Columbia and visiting the Missouri Arts Council's four featured June artists, one of whom is right here in Columbia. We have a mural artist, a classical guitarist, a printmaker and an encaustic artist. So, as usual, it's an eclectic evening of art. And we're going to start in Kansas City. Whenever Kansas City artist J.T. Daniels sees a blank wall, he sees an opportunity to communicate. And he communicates fast. A mural he painted on the Plaza Medical Building on Mill Creek Parkway in Kansas City spans three floors of the building and is around 36 feet tall by 70 feet, 75 feet wide. And he finished that mural in just four days. Another 15 foot by 23 foot mural called Charlie Parker's Mood was painted in a single session. For Daniels, his art is about expressing shared experiences and stories, about communicating and connecting with the world around us, and about creating art that is representational and inclusive. His work can be found on the walls of high schools, art centres, law firms, universities, an ice cream store, the Facebook data centre, inside Whole Foods, at the UMB School for Economics, at a streetcar stop, and even on the packaging for an iced tea brand that is sold all over the world. His art has been displayed at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art as part of their exhibit, Testimony, featuring the work of Kansas City's African American Artists Collective. He customised a Fender guitar for the 2019 Major League Baseball All-Star Game and created the poster and cover design for Kansas City rapper's Flair the Rebels 2020 single called Royalty. Though I think my favourite works are his banging hairdo series portraying the beauty of confident women wearing flamboyant hairstyles, a series after my own big hair heart. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, JT Daniels. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me. I love the idea of you constantly seeing a giant wall of art where the rest of us just see bricks or concrete. Have you ever met a blank wall that you didn't like? All the time. (laughs) I mean, there's some textures that are more forgiving than others. And now it's just um, it's just about visibility. So sometimes like in a back alleyway that those don't interest me as much. It just really depends on what the surface of the wall looks like. Sometimes it incurs more labor than others. Your designs are bright and bold, full of vibrant colours and people connecting with each other. But what astounded me in looking through your mural projects on your website is how fast you work at such a huge scale. What is your secret? How are you able to work so big so fast? I guess my biggest secret is really just um, I did maybe 10 to 15 years worth of like manual labour jobs before I kind of uh, started working for myself and got into a groove of that. So I remember loading packages for FedEx in the back of a hot truck and 
I get into that mind state where you just kind of clear everything out around you. And you just you get in and know what you got to do. And the faster you get it done, the faster you get paid or the faster you can move on to another project. I think the biggest component of all of that, though, is um, the pre-planning. So if you pre-plan your artwork as well as you can, when you get up there to go paint, I mean, you cut out a lot of the distractions or, you know, when you're an artist, you question yourself a lot. So if you do all that before you get in front of the wall, that takes out the majority of the problem there. So walk me through the process of creating a mural and the the challenges of taking a drawing and then transferring it onto a giant wall that may wrap around a corner or have pipes or windows jutting out. There are things to navigate. How, where does it start? Does it start on a sketchbook? And then what's the process to getting it finished? For me, it usually starts with a site visit. Like I said, it depends on the client. Uh, if it's a not-for-profit or if it's a school or if it's a business, we talk about who's going to see this wall, like who do they want to see this wall? And then who would they like to see this wall? And then I look at like who actually sees this wall, like what's the community look like? Is it in a bustling neighborhood or is it a lot of business or is there a lot of construction around this? Can you drive in front of this with your car? One aspect, like, is this a streetcar stop or is this something that gets viewed by travelers or visitors or something like that? It usually starts there. And then um, I I view the wall and then I I hear the intermittent storyline of uh, who that, that organization is or what they want to communicate. And then um, I take it and put it into the sketchbook and go from there. So you are scaling up the sketchbook. I always think about, you know, for painters, people are always stepping back from their paintings a lot. But when you're up a scaffolding, you can't really, you don't have that stepping back and forth perspective unless you, it's going to take you a lot longer to do that. So how much do you have the chance to do that? Or do you just transfer it onto the wall and then just start working and step back when you finally finished? I usually just transfer them to the wall and then I step back. I mean, you make time to step back. So if you're using scaffolding, I mean, you just hop off of it or climb down and you, you have to go back and spot it, make sure things are, are working out right. But I usually have, um, I call them anchor points within the design. And if the anchor points are right and then those feel right, then it's, you know, it's usually not too much of an issue. If the drawing is okay on the wall, then everything else usually matches up for me. So I either draw out the major details or the major shapes or um, I find where my anchor points on the design are, which could be like a nose and an eyebrow. I don't know if the nose is in the right spot in the wall, then I can draw the rest of the face from there. Uh, I can balance things out from there. Like, there's, a, there's a lot of hand-eye coordination that goes in that and just understanding um, spatial relationships. So you have been creating art since elementary school, but your artistic talent was not recognized by your early teachers. Instead, you got into trouble for painting and drawing, but you persisted. Tell me about finding the will to persist when everyone kept trying to stop you and who did inspire you to keep going. I mean, I think for that, there was always just uh, the one thing that I was good at was creating. I had a very active imagination. And uh, once I started putting pen to paper, it just kind of connected. A lot of elementary school, middle school, even up until about high school, most of it was just like I, I really couldn't pay attention in class. Like I I got the work. The work wasn't always very challenging. And so it was more of a challenge for me to take something that I saw that I liked, like a video game poster or comic book cover or something like that. And then I would try to look at that and recreate that. So that created a challenge for me. And then um, as I got a little bit older, I wanted to learn how to express that myself. I was like, well, you know, I can draw like Sonic the Hedgehog back and forward from from memory. Now, how can I change this to something else that I like? And moving into high school, like my dad was a, a big proponent of pushing forward to do something like, you know, to create your own business and then um, perfecting whatever it is that you were good at or that you liked. That's what you push forward with. 
And then um, I'd say like a big supporter of mine in high school, I had a lot of high school teachers that, I mean, they in general supported me, but there was uh, my art school teacher, Patricia Camper. She doesn't live in the city anymore. She took a, a, a really liking to my work and to me and, she gave me uh, classes before school and after school when I, I wasn't allowed to take art classes and then um, helped me to transfer and take her classes uh, later on in high school. And I think that was one of those things that really helped me out a lot. Did you at that point see murals in your future or how did the murals enter your art career? So I'm, I'm the first mural I ever, ever painted or I interacted with, there's a guy named Lucky Easterwood. He's a, a painter in Wyandotte County. And he painted a mural called um, something to remember, something like that. And it showed a bunch of kids together. And one kid was reaching out to a, a, a bubble and it was talking about our, our the future as children. Like, you know, you put your uh, your future into the youth and you help them have a, a great future. And that's how you progress forward. And I was about 11 years old. My dad put me in contact with him and dropped me off at his wall. I didn't help him paint anything. I was just kind of I was probably a big distraction and kind of in the guy's way for a good <laughs> hour or so. But that was the first time I ever interacted with a mural. And my dad used to help me to meet other artists in the city. They would do random stuff. Like, you know, they I don't know who they are now, but I learned how to draw like a, the, a foot from one person or I'd see someone else's work that I liked and pick up a, a new technique here, a new technique there. But the mural work really came into play for me um, at two occasions. I grew up driving from Wyandotte over into, uh, into Missouri with my dad to go to, to record stores and I'd see all the graffiti or I'd see like um, they had the NBA mural, the guy that's doing the, the dunk and hanging from the rim backwards. That was a really big thing that, for me. And then also I, I got a job at a not-for-profit later in life. So when I was 26, 27, I started working on a not-for-profit and um, we picked up uh, mural work. I told my, my boss at the time, Alicia Gambino, I was driving in and out of the Northeast, going up and down Independence Avenue. And I told her, I said, it'd be really cool one day if I got a chance to paint a mural. And I didn't know at the time that she used to be a muralist. And then um, her partner that used to paint murals with her, Jose Faust, was actually, um, he was an educator of mine in high school. I had after school classes with him for maybe a year, my junior, senior year of high school. And um, she wrote a grant and we did a mural that same summer. And then from there, I, I kind of just picked up mural work and I haven't stopped. You often add to your works text that resonates with you, particularly the word SUP, which for you is an acronym for surviving under pressure. Talk to me about what that means to you and how you want to give that phrase life through your art. So I was always trying to find a way to, to connect like graffiti work with what I do. And I'm not a graffiti artist, but I respect a lot of graffiti artists and um when I started using spray paint for my work specifically, I kind of went around town and I met a lot of the, well, at the time, I met a lot of graffiti artists and, you know, it, it was kind of a hard culture shift, but they gave me time to come out and watch what they did and talk to them. And I mean, I'm not really copying what they do. I don't have the same skill set that they have because some of the work they do is just miraculous and stupendous, right? It's really great. But they taught me a few things here and there. And because I didn't want to have an acronym for my name or I didn't have time to come up with a street name, I just created SUP. And to me, that that's uh, that's what everyone says to each other. They say, sup, what's going on? How you doing? What's going on? You know, what have you? And then um, I, I really figured that out, like waiting at bus stops and waiting for the streetcar to come pick you up and, and not having a car for a while made me talk to people because I'm kind of an introvert. And then doing the mural work when I work at night or in front of walls, 
everyone just comes up and shares with you their life story. And the thing that I pulled from that was that everyone's surviving under some kind of pressure. And that's the one thing that ties us all together because it doesn't matter how old you are, what class you are, you know, what ethnicity you are. Everyone has their own world problems to deal with. And that's something that everyone can relate to. And I feel like that's what ties us all together. Before we end, I also want to ask you about your brisk iced tea commission. You were one of 10 artists commissioned by PepsiCo as they were rebranding. And they found you, I believe, via social media and reached out to you. But tell me about how maybe this changed your career. That was a a spearhead for me. If it wasn't for that, I don't know where my career would be at the moment. Um, I was actually ready to quit doing art for a while. We were having the, in the process of having our second child and my wife was kind of giving me an ultimatum. You know, we were frustrated and art costs money, studio costs money. And I really wasn't making a lot of money off of my art and what have you. I did a few projects in the hope that you do a project here, you do a project there and something's going to turn out and not everything always connected, but there was always a hope that something would. And um, I did a live painting for the, the streetcar. They had a celebration for the one millionth ride and they posted the artwork to social media. And then some representatives that were kind of a third party representative for PepsiCo saw that and reached out to me from there. And then after that, like when you got a little bit of money in your, in your pocket, a little bit of money in your bank that gives you the ability to, to make some moves like moving forward or what have you, it gave me the opportunity to uh, kind of question my job and, I ended up moving over and getting another job. I did that job for two years. And then I decided to just uh, go full time and fully invest in myself. And with that project, coupled with the the mural projects I brought in the same year after that, um, people, once once they saw the artwork on the side of the, the brisk bottle, everyone was like, oh, I, I can like his artwork now. Like, I like that style. Like, it was so different. And then you find out it's really not that different from what you would see in other states or other cities. And so that it kind of solidified for me, like the ability to do the artwork that I like and uh, to push forward with it. Your artwork is amazing. To see the artwork of JT Daniels, check out his website at jtdanielsart.com or just wander around Kansas City as his work is in multiple locations. JT, thanks for sharing a little about your artistic journey and your art and for making time to chat today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Guitar-style instruments have been around for over three and a half thousand years since the days of Mesopotamia, but it wasn't until the late 1880s that the classical guitar as we know it today began to take shape, thanks to a Spanish guitarist and luthier called Antonio de Torres Jurado. And although in the modern era where you've become used to the guitar as a cornerstone of the rock world, the classical guitar is, says my guest this evening, a micro-orchestra where the tones and colours are endless. St. Louis-based concert artist and educator W. Mark Aiken has taken classes with some of the greats of the contemporary classical guitar music world and has won prizes in many guitar and classical music competitions across the country. Today, he is on the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and also works with the St. Louis Classical Guitar Society's Outreach Education Program, which sends teaching artists into schools to work with classroom music teachers, as well as providing professional development and in school residences. Plus, he is the host of a weekly radio show called Inside Classical Guitar, which broadcasts on Classic 107.3 in St. Louis. Welcome to the show, W. Mark Aiken. 
Thank you so much, Diana. It's a pleasure to be here. I had a guitarist on the show a few weeks ago, and when I asked him how many guitars he had, he said, just one, really. And as the wife of a guitarist, I find that rather incredible, as there must be seven or eight guitars in our house. Are you a one guitar man, or do you have rooms of them? Yeah, well, in my electric guitar commercial pop music days, I had a a few guitars because you need a different guitar for different styles. However, nowadays, I just have my one concert classical guitar, which is multiple thousands of dollars. And you can't exactly hoard guitars when they cost thousands and thousands of dollars. (laughs) So I've just got that one plus a uh, cheaper guitar that I use mainly for teaching. They're just the two, really. (laughs) So you are both a performer and an educator. Is your musical heart split 50-50 between those two professions, or are you more of one than another? You know, I think, personally, I need many different facets in my classical guitar world. I am, of course, strictly a classical guitarist, which can really box some people in. But um, I have the concert artistic side of me that I can provide some incredible, wonderful, intense, and difficult pieces of the repertoire to the wonderful audiences I get to perform for. But then I also get to teach even the first very few notes of the guitar to students. So I I do love both aspects of being a classical guitarist, the education plus the uh, concert artist as well. It keeps things fresh And I think if you box yourself in too much, things can get stale pretty quickly. Right. I'm guessing that financially, to survive as a classical music guitarist, you kind of need both. Exactly. So we can't all be, you know, the greats like David Russell or Manuel Butterwaker, who all they do is concertize, give a few master classes, and who knows how much money they're making with that. You definitely have to have a bunch of uh, irons in the fire if you want to make it as a classical guitarist. Well, like many budding guitarists, your early idols were in the world of rock. You cite Eddie Van Halen, Ungvi Malmsteen and Eric Johnson. But then you discovered classical guitar and your path in life was set. Tell us about that discovery. Yeah, well, you know, I, funnily enough, Starting out with guitar, I got a guitar for Christmas when I was in fourth grade. This was an electric guitar. And what's funny is that I didn't even ask for it. <laughs> and it stayed in the corner of my room for a year. Every now and then, I probably try to pluck a few notes out of it or whatever, uh, not getting very far. And then I asked my mom a year later if I could finally take guitar lessons. And I started doing that. I was learning some cool blues licks, you know, whatnot. And then I discovered Metallica and ACDC and all these great heavy metal classic rock bands. And so I was also doing, you know, drums and orchestral percussion and even had a very short stint with bagpipes for a little bit. (laughs) But, um, and then I also picked up classical guitar. And so I was kind of doing, you know, both electric and classical guitar and, um, My electric playing kind of plateaued when I was in college, but my classical playing really skyrocketed. And I thought to myself, well, I think I was going to go to grad school anyway for classical guitar. I might as well go 100% into this. And that's just kind of what happened. And after I made that decision, I won my college's concerto competition and started, you know, placing in other competitions as well and went on to grad school and... Long story short, here we are. So it was really in college that classical music came to the fore in your life and and you abandoned Guitar Hero and (laughs) 
<laughs> That's really true. That's exactly right. Because um, at the time, even though I was doing both, I went to uh, Belmont University in Nashville. And I was planning on being a studio musician. I was planning on going on the road with some hot new country artist. But uh, and I was really hoping that I could get out of my kind of pop electric rut that I was in with that sort of electric guitar playing. And I didn't, well, I guess you could say I did get out of it, but I got out of it by a completely different means than what I was expecting. Are you a classical guitar all the way, or do you have days where it's an Eric Johnson, Cliffs of Dover, or a Steve Vai kind of day, and you channel your inner rocker? (laughs) No, I've kind of left that part of my life behind. Um, I feel completely satisfied with classical music and classical guitar and just all the the nuances and subtleties and just beauty that comes with the classical guitar. I would imagine that being a solo guitarist has stage fright baked into it. Is this just you on the stage with a whole room full of expectant people staring at you, only you? Much different than being in a band. So you talk about how when you perform, you go to a bizarre state of mind of hyper awareness and zoning out, which kind of seems (laughs) like polar opposites. But talk to me about overcoming the terror of performing. How do you get there? Yeah, you know, for one thing, I always tell my students, the more you do it, the better you get at anything in life. And so you just have to start performing as much as possible. Get a little party of your friends together and play them some of your pieces and then seek out gigs and other performance opportunities. And, um, you know, I think the great choral composer, Eric Whitaker, I read one of his tweets one time and he said, you never completely get rid of stage fright. You just get really comfortable being terrified. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I, I pretty much agree with that statement. And yes, it can be incredibly nerve wracking when the audience is looking directly at you and there's no one else to compete for their attention. So it can be really scary. But at the other times you think, well, it's just me. I can take times and liberty with my tempos. Or if I want to do a particular phrasing thing, I can do this here. And it's not like a chamber music thing where everyone has to be in sync all the time. And you can actually take some risks. And if you make a blip here and there, you know, I don't think there's a such thing as a perfect performance. Um, so if you, if you make a little mistake here and there, it's not going to throw anyone else off. So it's just you. And so that's one, one way of how you can kind of ease the pressure is that no one else is relying on you (laughs) for you to play your part perfectly. Yeah. You trade freedom for fear or fear for freedom. You have the freedom to do what you want, but there's a little bit of extra fear in there. Exactly. (laughs) So you've taken classes with many contemporary masters of the classical guitar. And I'm curious, what have been some of your aha moments of truth that you've picked up over the years of studying with other masters? Oh, man. I tell my students this one instance of when I was a sophomore in college, I went up to Cleveland because I was in a master class with one of my absolute favorite guitarists, Jason Vio. He's one of the top guitarists working today. And I was playing this uh, piece by the great Spanish pianist, Isaac Albaniz, and the piece was Sevilla. And it's a very uppity piece. It's a quick tempo piece. Very fun. But uh, it was still technically challenging. And 
I was trying to play at odd tempo as best as I could, regardless of mistakes, regardless of whatever. And he said, which I have really taken to heart since, he said, I'd rather hear notes played cleanly than being in time. And that was just kind of like, whoa. So you can take a little bit of time to make a beautiful note. I don't think anyone will say, oh, he took that phrase out of time and that really bothered me versus, oh, he actually missed a note because he was trying to play in tempo. So I think that's one of the main things that I've actually taken away from this. I wish that somebody had said that to me when I entered a competition. I used to play the harp and I entered a competition and after the, in front of a full room of of other harpists, the judge said, Miss Moxon, rubato is not the same as playing out of time. Exactly. (laughs) I was crushed. (laughs) (laughs) So I like the advice that you got better. So in 2017, you bought out an album called Crimson Tower, and I would like to play a clip from the opening track on the album called Sonata 4 by the prolific Spanish composer Antonio Jose. Tell us a little bit about why this track made the cut for your album, and then we'll give it a listen. Yeah, so this is the fourth movement of the sonata by Antonio Jose. And what is really fascinating about this piece is that it was actually lost uh, ever since Jose's death. He was mistakenly executed during the Spanish Civil War. He was only in his early 30s when he died. But with this piece, you can hear how promising he was as a composer. And you can only imagine just the depth of pieces we would have gotten from him if that mistaken execution didn't happen. And so it was discovered, I think, in the early 90s and has become one of the major, like, quote-unquote, big, meaty sonatas that we have for classical guitar. And this is the fourth movement of that sonata entitled Final by Antonio Jose. Here it is. Thank you. 
little bit about the album. It's a mixture of works by contemporary Brazilian composers and guitarists such as Sergio Assad and Marco Pereira, along with other works by Antonio Jose and even one by Edvard Grieg. What story are you telling with your musical choices on this album? This album, I think for me, <clears throat> the music that really resonates to me is three three types of music. And that is romantic era music. So you have the Grieg there. Grieg is just one of my all-time favorite composers all around. He never wrote for guitar, but this is my transcription of a beautiful little piece called uh, Vector Lead or the Watchman song. So I love the kind of uh, romantic era guitar music. There's also a piece by Isaac Albaniz entitled Torre Bermeja, which loosely translates to Crimson Tower. That's where the album gets ah. its name from. And then I love just Spanish music in general. That's music that I feel like I can play really well and really draw out the lyricism from. And then finally, Brazilian music, because what really attracts me to Brazilian music is not just sort of quasi-jazz harmonies, but also the rhythm. There's a lot of just inherent groove into modern classical, quote-unquote classical Brazilian guitar playing. So this is just kind of, I guess you could call it a biography of just who I am. So a final question that I always like asking musicians, what would be your dream stage to play on and who would you love to duet with on that stage? I would love to do concertos with major orchestras like um, St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. I really adore the Nashville Symphony Orchestra or let's go bigger, let's say LA Phil or, you know, San Francisco, what have you. And do concertos with them and not do the normal, quote unquote, normal concertos like Aron with or whatever. There's two more modern pieces that I've really fallen in love with that I, you could call bucket list pieces. One is by a British composer, Joby Talbot. He wrote a concerto entitled Ink Dark Moon for Milos Kaladaric, very famous guitarist. And then another one that was written for Manuel Barueco by a composer named Jonathan Lezhnov, a really wonderful concerto. So those two have really piqued my interest when it comes to concertos. So if I got to play one of those with a major symphony orchestra, I would be on cloud nine and we could check that one off the bucket list. (laughs) Well, I shall look forward to hearing you play those with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. (laughs) You can hear and see the music of W. Mark Aiken on his website at wmarkguitar.com. And also there you'll find a list of upcoming concerts. And I should add that the W of W. Mark Aiken is important as there is another Mark Aiken guitarist, performer and educator, although he's more in the shredding line of guitar (laughs) music. So do include the W. Mark, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation to chat with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Diana. It's been a pleasure. In 1986, I spent a year living in Sweden as part of my degree in, believe it or not, Swedish. And that was when I first happened upon IKEA. Having grown up in a home of carpets, drapes and wallpaper that swirled and blossomed in complete disregard for each other, this pristine Swedish IKEA world was heavenly. 
My Swedish friends all had their own tiny, mostly white IKEA furnished apartments that to my eye were perfect. And this was long before IKEA became a global brand. All of which is to say I was fascinated by print and collage artist Lisa Franco's MFA thesis show, which was on display at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery a couple of years ago, and which took as its starting point how there are always gaps between the advertised ideal of a product in this case, IKEA homewares, and that product living up to our expectations. Her thesis show also explored the disconnect between the 2D and the 3D world, how the flatness of a paper catalogue image translates to our lived-in world, and how, if you see something enough, even something that is visually jarring or ugly it too can end up becoming desirable. Her show titled I Saw the Striped Couch was just the beginning for her ongoing exploration of how interior design patterns have evolved or been boiled down from works by 20th century abstract artists such as Bridget Riley, Annie Albers or Helen Frankenthaler. Lisa Franco, what a delight to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. And I wish that I could go back and uh, quote you for my thesis. That was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I know your thesis wasn't really about IKEA per se, but rather about the failure of consumable projects, objects rather, to function in their intended ways once they enter our homes. But for me, in 1986, my interpretation of IKEA's consumable objects was that they were a total success, probably because they were the polar opposite of the environment environment in which I had grown up. But tell me what the inspiration was behind this thesis idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I sort of have always had a fascination with IKEA as well. I think there's sort of a stripped down, maybe minimalist, simple aesthetic, very clean. And yes, exactly what you said that it's uh, sort of makes you think that you can create this perfect, clean environment to live in. So a lot of my fascination definitely came from um, from Ikea and just this idea in general of how we are marketed this perfect living space and this idea that if we are able to create the perfect living space, then everything in our lives will be perfect, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, is not true. But I think to some degree, I think a lot of us still buy into that. Or you think maybe it won't be perfect, but, you know an improvement, right? (laughs) On your life, if you could just get everything perfect and tidy. Yeah. So the centerpiece of your thesis show was a striped black and white couch. Uh, Tell us about the couch and and why stripes and, and why a couch over any other item? So to answer specifically the couch, I've always felt like is uh, this, in some ways, it's sort of the hub of the home. It's sort of the centerpiece of the home. Some might argue that it's a kitchen table or things like that, but I'd probably argue that collectively we spend more time on the couch than anywhere else. And the stripes sort of came out of, again, my interest in minimalism and stripping things down to its most essential forms, which again, stripes, lines, right, are sort of the simplest form when we talk about art. And also, honestly, I wanted to create something that at first glance was quite honestly ugly. But, you know, this idea of a white couch with thick, dark gray stripes, it's not something that people would most likely want in their home unless it was a (laughs) beach home or something like that. 
But part of my goal with the show, and whether it was successful or not, I don't think will ever be answered, but part of my goal with the show was if I can show you this couch enough times in enough different capacities, right? So the couch was repeated hundreds of times in the show. And it was sort of an experiment to see if I showed you this ugly couch enough times, could I convince you to make a connection with it and almost possibly consider having that in your home, right? Again, just like Ikea and different places will show us the same product over and over and over again until suddenly we're say, I have to have that. So the couch, I mean, you made it. You actually constructed a couch as the centerpiece of the show, right? Yes, yes, I absolutely did. Yes, I uh, found an old couch, ripped the upholstery off, rebuilt it, reupholstered it, not well, but reupholstered it again in canvas, primed it, painted it. So yeah, so the upholstery actually became canvas. So the couch sort of started to hover between a piece of furniture and a painting. And then you made prints of this couch uh, that you had designed. First of all, you'd drawn it, then you'd made a model and you'd made the full-size one. And then you used that initial drawing of the black and white couch and you repeated it hundreds of times. Sometimes it was just by itself on a postcard. Sometimes it had other furnishings with it in the prints and the collages that you made. It might have a rug with it or a plant. And then what I love too is in the real world, next to the black and white couch, you had made tables that were at a a wonky slash jaunty angle because you're thinking about the 2D page and how everything is flat. And so you made extra furniture that kind of looked flat too. Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) Which is brilliant. Thank you. Do you do woodwork? I mean, how did you go from being a printmaker to suddenly being a furniture designer or builder? (laughs) No, I'm actually notoriously terrible with... (laughs) Uh, tools and things like that. So it was certainly a challenge, but I definitely had in my favor the fact that, like you said, I wanted things to look wonky. So some of the things that happened were just sort of accidents that I embraced, you know? So when you're not trying to make something perfect, it's a little bit easier. So you describe yourself as a, a primarily as a printmaker and that, you, as you said, you're intrigued by the idea of multiples and what happens in our brains to our opinion when an object or a pattern is repeated over and over again and whether that changes our reception of it. Talk to me about what you feel does happen or maybe what you discovered from this MFA thesis about the world of multiples and how it alters our opinions. Yes, again, I always consider myself a printmaker no matter what actual medium I'm working with because I do think about things in multiples. Um, So yes, this show included prints, but it also had these 2D installations and things like that. But to me, anything that includes something that's shown over and over again, I think can be considered printmaking. And I'm sorry, I feel like I forgot the other part of your question. How do you think it changes people's opinion? I mean, what feedback did you get from the show? Did anybody want to buy the black and white striped couch? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I can't say anyone wanted to buy it. 
But I will say, so I'm still in Columbia where I had that show a couple of years ago. And I taught while I was in school. And then I was an adjunct for a while at Mizzou. So I'm still around in the community. And I have had several, particularly students, that come up to me. They'll see me somewhere or, you know, I'll introduce myself and they'll say, are you the person who made the striped couch? <laughs> so it sort of has this little bit of infamy around it. And I will admit the actual big striped couch did live in the art department building for a while, longer than it should have. So students would pass it and not understand the context of it, but just know that that was the striped couch. Um, <laughs> so in that way, it's funny that it's sort of carried on. But yeah, I viewed that show as an experiment. Again, it was just one gallery. So like I said, there was hundreds of striped couches. But who knows, it might take thousands and thousands to really sort of embed in people's brains. I'm not sure. But it was sort of an experiment to see if I could start that process of making somebody remember it maybe for years after. I guess that worked. (laughs) (laughs) So since your thesis show, you've been looking at the evolution of pattern and how often pattern starts in an artist's studio. And then over time, they evolve and become kind of apparent in interior design and whether or not there is a link between fine art created by women and the design choices made in in homes where often it is women that are making the purchasing decisions. What have you discovered on this journey? Yeah, again, I think that's where that through line of IKEA comes in sometimes. Because throughout my arts education, there have been so many beautiful works of art that, you know, I have learned about. But there's so many patterns that I would start to see that then I would go to somewhere like Ikea or Pottery Barn or something like that. And you would see sort of this boiled down version of these beautiful designs that artists created sort of boiled down onto a pillow or a throw or a rug or something like that. Um, And I'm not necessarily, I don't really see that as a negative, but I'm just fascinated in what that trajectory is. So describe for us one of your recent pieces and what it looks like. It's a collage work and it's like a little shot of an interior space, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So in a lot of them, the main focus, I think, is the rug that's on the floor. Oftentimes, I think it's a printmaker in me. Still, I like to create on a white space. So a lot of times there's not walls, um, there's not a complete floor. There's sort of things that are hovering in space, but they're almost always grounded by a rug. Um, And very much like the prints that we were talking about earlier in my thesis show, a lot of times the perspective is skewed. I sort of intentionally highlight the flatness of paper, of collages. So things often have a skewed perspective. They feel very flat. There's oftentimes just your average everyday decorative items, furniture. There's oftentimes a couch with throw pillows, something on the wall, maybe a table with a couple of knickknacks or a mug or something like that. But again, they're always grounded or almost always grounded with a rug. And lately, I've been taking inspiration, like you said, from a lot of female artists that I'm inspired by. So I will oftentimes find one of their paintings or their prints, and I will replicate that 
But instead of that being artwork that hangs on the wall, it will be on that rug that grounds the collage. So one thing I'm curious about is a copyright or appropriation. When you take another artist's work and use it in your own art, even if it's not an absolute copy, but it's more of a close approximation, are there any guidelines to follow for what is and is not permitted? Yes, that's a wonderful question. And in the art world, it gets a little bit tricky. I would say certainly what I'm doing is is safe. It is fair. Um, it's sort of if you're shifting the context of what you're using, you are safe. But yes, I don't hide the fact that I am using the artwork of others in a different way. I will always title the works. For instance, I keep bringing up Agnes Martin. So I have done a collage where her work of art is the rug. And I title that Agnes Martin rug. So I kind of view it as an homage to those artists. Well, you can explore the art of Lisa Franco on her website at lisafranco.com. And if you are out and about in Columbia, you can see Lisa's art on the traffic box on the corner of Fifth and Broadway, which has a little Annie Albers, a little Bridget Riley and some potted plants from an MFA thesis show. (laughs) That's right. Lisa, thanks so much for taking time to chat and sharing a little bit about your art with us this evening. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. The use of beeswax, resin and pigment for painting is an ancient technique, well predating artists' use of pigment mixed with plaster to paint frescoes or mixed with egg white to create tempera or even pigments in oils. Wax encaustic painting was described by Pliny the Elder in the first century AD and it was an oft-used technique by ancient Roman and Greek painters. But as with many things from ancient times, centuries of war, disaster and winners rewriting history meant that encaustic painting techniques were lost for more than a millennia, only resurfacing again in the early 20th century. But in recent years, encaustic art has had something of a resurgence, and it is the medium of choice for Springfield-based artist Jodie Sutton, who, after taking a 10-year art hiatus after her BFA, returned to the art world in 2016 and taught herself encaustic painting. Her bodies of work span non-representational abstracts, landscapes and abstracted landscapes, florals and seascapes, and it all started with an episode of Crafters Coast to Coast on HGTV. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Jodie. Hello, thank you for having me. I read somewhere that it takes 10 pounds of honey to make one pound of wax. So there's a lot of bee labour in the caustic <laughs> painting. Do you have any bee-dedicated works in your collection? <laughs> Just a few. So I admit I did not know about encaustic painting until about 15 years ago. So I was definitely trailing the resurgence bandwagon. So assuming many other people don't know what it is, go ahead and explain the process. So caustic is beeswax and damar resin, which is a tree resin, melted together. And then you apply it. It's at a melted state, about 200 degrees. You apply it and then you use a blowtorch or a heat gun and you kind of fuse the layers together. So it can be on multiple surfaces, right? You can work on, you have works on paper, there are works on board. It's just this molten-y, runny, liquid wax. Yeah, so it's all melted and hot whenever I paint it on. So it's kind of like a hot version of oil paints or watercolors. Do you make your own 
encaustic medium? I do. I purchase some and then I make my own. I use a lot of whites and a lot of indigo, so I tend to make those colors. How do you do that? So I purchase the raw pigments and then I mix it in with the beeswax and resin. Okay. And so there's another medium which is similar in that it uses wax, but it's totally different in how it's applied. And that's cold wax, which, as its name implies, is not heated. <laughs> Have you dabbled in cold wax painting too, or are you encaustic all the way? So when I first started out, I dabbled in it a little bit, thinking, oh, this might be kind of fun. But I definitely gravitated towards the encaustic. Why do you prefer encaustic? It's kind of quick in the dry time is is a lot faster than oil paint, so I'm not having to wait. I'm a little impatient. I think that's uh, how most people are these days. So cold wax can't be heated. It has a solvent in it. Correct. Which one sets quicker? Like, which one do you have more flexibility with? So the encaustic sets quicker. I would say that cold wax, you have a little more flexibility. You're able to um, manipulate that a little easier. Encaustic, it's kind of hit or miss. Hit or miss how? It doesn't like to always do what you want it to do. So the straight <laughs> lines, uh, getting the crisp lines is a little harder than it would be with cold wax. So how do you do that? Is there a technique? Mostly you were working fairly abstract, so you're not looking for, in terms of your art, you're not looking for super crisp lines. But I mean, how do you do that? They have little tools. You can incise the lines. You can transfer photos onto a caustic. It plays nice with photo transfers. And I've seen some artists who are just super, super skilled at doing detailed work. Patience. Lots of patience. <laughs> what do you love about encaustic? I like the spontaneity of it and the transparencies I'm able to get with it. So if you hold an encaustic painting and look at it closely, you can see the different layers within it. So we have the translucent layers that build upon the uh, opaque layers. It's just really pretty. What are some of the challenges maybe about this medium? Just getting it to do what you want it to do. I think it takes a lot of experimenting, like with all mediums, just kind of learning it and just rolling with the punches. Because, it, it, yeah, it just sometimes it does what it wants to do. <laughs> So when when you're sitting down to create a work and you've got a blank piece of paper or a blank board in front of you and you kind of have a plan, do you often just throw it out the window and see what comes out? Or are you always chasing a dream when you're sitting down to create? So I am inspired a lot by what I see around me, whether it's traveling. So I kind of have a plan and occasionally I'll sketch it out. I kind of go back and forth where... It's just kind of free-flowing. I may do a little, a couple of paintings on paper just to kind of play around and then move to the, uh, the boards. I kind of go back and forth. Like sometimes I have a plan, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I have a title. Like the, my latest one, I named it the Bubblegum Rocket Ship. <sighs> I heard that. I thought it was, it was great. And so I created some paintings that I felt kind of fit that name. So you have these different bodies of work. You have the landscapes, more representational landscapes, more abstracted landscapes, and then fully, fully abstracted works. Where does your heart lie? Do you do you kind of really mix them up? Or again, do you have days when you sit down and you think, nope, it's a landscape day. Do not want to do an abstract today. <laughs> it definitely uh, what inspires me at the moment. If I have to travel for my job, it, the landscapes or changing of the seasons definitely affect 
my frame of mind on where I'm going with those. And then I love, love abstracts. I don't know. It's a, it's a hard one for me. Yeah, definitely. I like both. I'm a designer, so I definitely like, like the abstract and, and minimalist design. That's exactly what I was going to ask you next. Going back in time, you started your art career in graphic design and also photography. So what made you move away from those media into something that is very much more imprecise than both of those? (laughs) Well, sitting in front of the computer for eight hours a day, definitely, I needed a break. I needed to do something that wasn't in front of a screen and kind of take my take my mind away from it and not be so uh, rigid, I guess. How do you think your background in graphic design and photography influences your encaustic work? I definitely have the design principles going on whenever I create something. I think that definitely comes across on a lot of the abstract stuff where that definitely plays a part in how I and how I designed the painting. Take me back through your career a little bit. You graduated from Missouri Southern State University in 2006, and you had a BFA in graphic design. And then there was a gap of 10 years, and then you came back to art. What took you away, and what inspired you to come back? Just staying busy with uh, work. I worked for a newspaper for a while. Then I started with an education company and family. I have two girls, and once I started getting a little bit older decided uh, I need something to do with my time. And I read somewhere, I forget, that you had had a stroke. I did. After the birth of your second child. Did that affect how you were able to create at all? It didn't affect that, but it definitely gives you a new perspective on life, I think. Not being so wrapped up in the drama and everything that revolves around a job and enjoying enjoying my family and enjoying my pastimes more. Do your children make art too? They do. They love art. I always drag them to every art event. So if I'm uh, visiting a gallery, they, they tag along and both of them like to paint and draw. And any art classes I try to sign them up for just to let them experience everything. I think the latest art class was a fused glass class where they got to make little um, sun catchers, and they love it. Have you got them involved in your encaustic process? Yes, so they will come down and they'll they'll paint. I let them paint and, and have fun and just have at it. Your work, I mean, you've only been doing this for six years, but your work has been in a lot of shows around southern Missouri. But, and back in 2017, you were also in the annual encaustic exhibition at the Morpho Gallery in Chicago. And I'm curious how seeing the other works in that exhibit at such an early point, really, in your encaustic journey might have inspired or advanced your own encaustic practice. What did you take away from that show? Just looking at other people's art, you can kind of see the techniques that they used and not copy it, but be like, oh, that's a great idea. Um, how can I how can I expand upon that in mind? And just see just seeing the different levels of their the quality of their work was amazing. There is, I just learned, as I was researching about encaustic, even a museum of encaustic art in Cerrillos, New Mexico. And it's fascinating to look through 
that gallery of encaustic artist members and see the range of works that you can do in encaustic. There's ethereal landscapes and the portraits and textured mixed media works and 3D sculpture works and works that, as you said earlier, that incorporate photography. So I'm wondering about your own experimentations and new techniques that you're trying. What are you working on? Where are you, how are you branching out? So lately I have been doing monoprints and incorporating those into my work. So I'll, I'll paint on my encaustic palette, do some fun colors, take a print, and then cut up the print and embed it in my work. So it's mixed media. Have you done anything with combining your photography? I played around with that in the beginning. It just didn't quite stick. So I, I love the photo encaustics of other artists. They're they're amazing. I just had more fun playing with with the colors and creating my own work. But you do also incorporate string and wire and three dimensional components in your work, right? Yes, yes. I enjoy incorporating fabric in some of my landscapes. When you look real close at them, you'll see a little bit of fabric in the ground area. I love the texture that it creates. And besides seeing your work online, where can people see it in person? So my work is available in Springfield at Fresh Gallery, also in Joplin at the Spiva Art Gallery, and Carthage at Cherry's Art Gallery. Do you submit your work to many exhibitions and competitions around the country? I do. Since COVID, it's been kind of low, but I have started submitting more stuff this year. Well, to see the artwork of Jodie Sutton, you can visit her website at jsuttonstudio.com. And if you're in this Springfield area, drop into the Fresh Gallery to see it or the Spiva Art Centre in Joplin. Jodie, thank you for giving us a little peek into the world of encaustic art and for making time to chat today. Oh, thank you for having me. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, muralist JT Daniels, classical guitarist W. Mark Aikens, printmaker and collage artist Lisa Franco, and encaustic painter Jody Sutton. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to support KOPN's Home of Our Own Capital Campaign, go to kopn.org forward slash support forward slash capital hyphen campaign. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.